Welcome back to Curious Combinations, and everything's unoriginal podcast. I'm AF Tanith, and today I'm covering Umbrella Academy Season 3, Episode 5. And today's discussion is going to include trigger warnings for rape, the prison industrial complex, all kinds of things that, well, some people aren't going to want to hear. I do a lot of ranting in this episode. I have a lot of opinions. Many people are not going to agree. But I wanted to get them out. They are, in fact, my response to the show. And if at any point that you feel uncomfortable listening, you are fully welcome to just turn it off. Don't waste your time and energy on my nonsense if you don't want to. So, Allison. Allison, Allison, Allison. You just had to go and make me write a whole ass essay about your behavior, didn't you? <sighs> Let's get into this. We open on what is confirmation to me that I have been correct about Klaus. We find him in what I can only assume is this universe's version of the afterlife, and there's lovely things happening here with color that I am simply not equipped right now to analyze. The subtle pops of yellow in a world of grayscale are fascinating, and I recall something similar in the first season's equivalent of this scene, except that I cannot recall if yellow came into play then, and how much of it there was, or if maybe it was a different color that stood alone, or maybe I misremembered and there wasn't any color at all. Either way, Klaus wanders through his grayscale world and learns about himself. The near-death experiences he's had throughout his life were not what they seemed. They weren't, in fact, near-death experiences at all. They were actual deaths. Klaus has died over and over again, and he's come back to life. It might even be the case that he cannot die at all, even if he were to try to stay dead. And I think it's telling that as he opens the door to the mausoleum in which he was tortured and apparently killed by Reginald as a child, that's when the world regains its color. Life and death, past and present, they collide for him now in full technicolor, cluing him in to something he likely has known subconsciously all along. Klaus is immortal, and Reginald always knew. Back in the realm of the living, Victor wildly mishandles Harlan's revelation. The two men square off, preparing to go head-to-head -head in a glowy, super-powered fight. And it's dumb. Harlan might technically be the older one here, but that's not really what's relevant. What's relevant is that Victor is a parental figure for him, one of the people responsible for his worst childhood wounds, and Harlan cannot be expected to think clearly around Victor. Victor is a walking, talking trigger for Harlan's trauma, and I get that Victor has just found out that Harlan killed his mother and the other moms. But Jesus Christ, set your shit aside for a second and ask some questions instead of picking a fight. You don't get to play mean dad demanding answers 50 plus years after ditching this guy. When Harlan does finally get to talk, though, I like what he's got to say. Well, maybe like is the wrong word? I don't like knowing what he accidentally did, but I'm very pleased to be getting answers, especially because the answers are sensical and satisfying. Harlan killed the moms because his power had been seeking Victor out for over 20 years at that point in his life, and in the moments immediately after his mother's death, Harlan suddenly sensed Victor in the world. But it wasn't Victor. Victor did not exist yet. Victor was just a fetus rapidly developing in his mother's womb, and Harlan connecting to the unfortunate 43 resulted in a full 27 of them having their brains melted by his inability to disentangle himself without causing significant harm. It's a tragedy, yes, but it's an accident. Harlan had no intention of harming anyone, and no awareness of what his actions might cause when he decided to act. Elsewhere, in the Obsidian, Allison is flashing back to when she last felt love. In the 60s, when she would awake in the midst of a flashback, Ray would comfort her, hold her, sing to her, calm her down. And Allison left him to get back to her own time and her own daughter. And neither of those things exist anymore. 
this time that she's in is not hers, and her daughter doesn't even exist, and she's got nothing right now except for Diego's idea of emotional support and as much booze as she can drink. Back with Harlan and Victor, there's an interesting conversation happening that I'm hoping the show leans into a bit more. We deal with trauma a lot in this show. We deal with the trauma of feeling isolated and alone, the trauma of being neglected and abused by parental figures, the trauma of betrayal and of racism and of being trapped in inescapable situations. And what's happening in this scene between Victor and Harlan, it reminds me of manifestations of intergenerational trauma. Harlan has powers that he feels are not his, powers that he cannot control and that have caused him to hurt people. And Victor takes on the responsibility of those powers. The part of Harlan that hurts people is the part of Harlan that Victor added to his life. And that is so reminiscent of the cycle of abuse that it hurts. A son hurts people without meaning to because that is the legacy of his father. A father had something about him that was his to control, but he didn't manage to control it. And the son grew up to hurt people because of what his father's influence left behind. It's far more literal when it comes to Harlan and Victor than it is for most father and son duos in this situation, yes. But that is the metaphor here, and I hope we get to see it explored even more deeply as the story moves forward. Because it's not only Harlan and Victor who are a part of this cycle. Harlan got his powers, his violence, from Victor, but Victor got his from Reginald. And so too did Reginald abuse Luther and Klaus, who we've seen turn to self-harming behaviors to cope. Diego, who copes by inflicting violence on others and who is furthering the cycle with his own apparent son. Allison, who has abused at least three of her own loved ones and is rapidly spiraling out of control. Five, who ran away from home to escape his father's control, and Ben, who simply did not survive his childhood. They're all part of the cycle, all of them. Reginald and Grace, Luther and Klaus, Allison and Claire, Diego and Stanley, Ben and Five and Victor and Harlan. Even the Sparrows, I'm quite sure, are a part of this. They fall under the awful umbrella of Reginald Hargreaves' abusive influence, and it's having increasingly tragic results. Speaking of tragic results, though, the legacy of shit communication lives on. Harlan announces that he's got to go tell the Umbrellas the truth of what happened to the 43, and Victor talks him out of it. He says that they will need to do this delicately, that his siblings are primed for a fight, and they will need to carefully break this news very gently and under the exact right circumstances. And Harlan agrees because he trusts Victor at least well enough to get this done. And he really, really shouldn't have because communication is not now and has never been Victor Hargreaves' strong suit. None of these siblings are good communicators or good listeners, and so of course this goes about as horribly as it possibly could. But we're not quite there yet. Right now, we are dealing with Faye and Ben again. Spare me, I beg of you, from Faye and Ben. Faye is starting to show that she's got a hint of a brain at least, and Ben is losing his entire mind. Harlan apparently, quote, needs to be dealt with before we can merge the families, and I'm sorry, but when the fuck was that on the table? The last time Ben was on screen, he was threatening to murder the Umbrellas, and now we're gonna merge the fucking families? Are y'all high? Am I high? Like, I don't even think Ben and Faye have ever really had it properly explained to them who the fuck the Umbrellas even are. And now Ben wants them to be his new goddamn siblings to replace the dead ones? I just... I feel like I'm losing my mind here, and the last threads of my sanity are only hanging in there thanks to my absolute certainty that no, Ben is the one who's lost his goddamn marbles. It's not me. It's Ben. 
So when Victor heads downstairs, he doesn't even get a word out before the situation goes sideways. There is a fresh cut on his cheek, and when Luther asks if Harlan did it, Victor is not even clever enough to lie. His lines about how it's not Harlan's fault, actually Victor made him do it somehow, they come across like your typical victim defending their abuser, and when both Diego and Allison also show up with wounds, it turns into a whole misunderstanding with Luther and Diego and Allison coming down pretty firmly on the anti-Harlan side of things, before Victor has even had a chance to break the really bad news to anyone. Now, Diego does a little thing here that I've got to admit scared the shit out of me the first time I saw it. He does this little quirk of his neck and nod toward Allison while smirking at Luther, and my heart just about dropped into my stomach when I saw that. Upon second viewing, I think what Diego was trying to do was signal to Luther that his wounds and Allison's wounds were related, but that look was so smug and show-offy that it came across as trying to make Luther jealous, and I had such an awful moment of, oh my god, did Diego and Allison fuck off screen? That I'm honestly not sure I'm recovered from it even now. And I'm still not completely convinced that they didn't. Allison is very clearly alright with the idea of trying to use her brothers to fuck away her pain. I don't like it. But that's where she is. But before anything else can happen, Five and Lila show up with the final briefcase in all of time, and it's broken, which devastates Allison. And while Lila is now interested in making up with Diego, she's also wondering where the hell her supposed son is, which implies a oh-shit-what-have-you-done reveal in the near future. Five calls a family meeting and Klaus can't be found, but apparently Lila is considered part of the family now, and I have a lot of words for that, and not a one of them kind. We want to hand Harlan over to the Sparrows to be executed, but Lila is fucking family? Get the fuck out of here with that shit. If the definition of family includes enemies turned baby mamas, then it also includes quasi-stepkids that we've accidentally given powers to. Otherwise, fuck all the way off. Upstairs, Diego tracks down Stan, and I feel so bad for this poor kid. I recognize this behavior. This is the behavior of a child who's been abused. This is the behavior of a child who has internalized that there is nothing worse in the universe than your parents' wrath. This is the behavior that many a so-called ODD child displays when they're desperate to cover up their mistakes because they're certain that they're not going to be met with anything resembling kindness or understanding. When they're certain, that what they've done means that they are unloved and unlovable. So it's awful what Stan is trying to do here. Yes. But I have infinite compassion for this child and the situation that he's in. Imagine what he has endured to make him think that dissolving Klaus's body in acid is a smarter and safer thing to do than to just ask an adult for help after an accident. And the way that Diego handles this... Well, I'm of two minds. On the one hand, I can see the trauma there. The way Diego handles this is not phenomenal because I recognize it as how I would handle this. At first, at least, before Diego kind of starts to go off the rails a little bit. I, too, grew up in an emotionally neglectful and abusive household. And I, too, am vastly too calm and seemingly emotionless in situations that would normally tear people apart. But it's this realistic emotional detachment that allows Diego the space to manifest his best moment yet as a father. He gets the truth out of his kid, and when the two of them both start to tear up, Diego puts his own reaction aside in favor of soothing his child's. Stan is spiraling, terrified of the consequences of what he accidentally did, and too young to have the emotional maturity to understand and handle the situation. 
and Diego actually comforts him pretty well. He does nothing to minimize the gravity of the situation, no, but he takes the time to emphasize that Stanley is still loved in spite of what he accidentally did. In the long run, this is the behavior that will teach Stanley that he shouldn't hide his mistakes, that he needn't do awful things on purpose to cover for something awful that he did on accident. It's a gorgeous moment, and it's the first time I've been even mildly impressed with something that Diego's done. I'm not quite as impressed with his parenting as Lila is, but I am pleasantly surprised. As for the dead man in question, though, he's having a muted colors chat with his formerly Amish not-mom. And even though she's not actually his mom anymore, she loves him and she watches over him and she knows him. It's terribly sweet, but it's not really what Klaus wants to hear. He's searching for something and doesn't really know what it is, and his mother insists that it's been right in front of him all along. And right in front of him, in his stew, forms the unmistakable image of a buffalo. One presumes a white buffalo. And Klaus is as clueless about this as I am. At the Obsidian Bar, Lila and Five are breaking the news about the Kugelblitz to the others. Five's tentative plan is to somehow travel back in time to destroy whatever or whoever killed off their moms, but of course he can't do that because he can't reliably time travel right now, and Victor wouldn't let him anyway. Meanwhile, Diego is dragging his brother's corpse downstairs in a half-baked scheme to explain what's happened to the rest of the family. He ignores his son's attempt to bond through dark humor, which is the wrong move because this is a behavior he needs to have corrected. And he affirms once again that he's got his son's back no matter what, which is the right move because again, it encourages Stanley to trust his dad enough to come forward if and when anything like this ever happens again. And then, in the tight confines of the elevator, Klaus suddenly comes back to life. He scares the shit out of Stanley and Diego, and honestly, that is very much deserved, and we see Diego once again suppress his emotional response. Realistically, he's going to crash soon from the emotional overload. At some point in the near future, a real person would break down, because that is a whole roller coaster of emotional responses to have to keep in check during a very short span of time. But given that we're talking about Diego here, I rather doubt that we're ever going to see his crash on screen. Though I very much wish that we would. But maybe there's not really any time for a crash right now. The universe is ending, after all, and another surge of the Kugelblitz strikes when Ben and Faye decide to throw Grace's eye into the damn thing to see, quote, the other side. It is news to me that there is an other side, of course, but I'm not sure if I should believe this or not. Ben is definitely just making shit up at this point, that much is clear, and Faye is the only one between them who's got anything resembling a single brain cell. And perhaps the less said about the sparrows, the better. Now, as a side note, I stared at this scene of Grace's eye going into the portal, and just, I got stuck. I was racking my brain for why it felt so damn familiar to me, and I could not, for the life of me, figure it out for the entire day after I watched the episode. I ended up just sitting down around bedtime and trying to mentally comb through every single fucking story I have experienced in the last year or two before it finally struck me what I was thinking of. This reminds me of the cutscene in XCOM 2 when Shen sends her little robot guy through the portal to record and explore the alien homeworld, and the robot straight up gets fried. I will link that in the show notes for anyone interested in checking it out, and I do highly recommend that game for anyone who, you know, games. Anyway, this is the second time that disturbing the Kugelblitz results in a wave of destruction. First it was Marcus trying to touch it, and now it's the eye camera going in. 
And I really do think that there's more to this thing than we're being led to believe. I won't go so far as to co-sign Ben's bullshit. I don't really think that this scene is comparable to that XCOM scene in that I'm not really convinced of the possibility that there might be an other side to this black hole, though I suppose that's possible as something the writers might do. What I do think, though, is that there's more to a Kugelblitz in this universe than just a black hole consuming the universe. Grace says that this thing is talking to her, and she's speaking in tongues to it in kind, and before he died, Marcus too said he heard its voice or something to that effect. There's definitely more to the Kugelblitz than meets the eye. As for our umbrellas, though, Allison is fully falling apart. She has to walk away from the group to try to compose herself, and it's a struggle to get her nerves back under control. Back in the main group, though, things aren't going well for anyone else, either. Luther and Victor's long-buried struggles are coming to a head once again. Luther is arguing vehemently in favor of turning Harlan over to the Sparrows, and Victor is barely mustering any counter-arguments, so Luther manages to convince the rest of them with relative ease, and I, for one, am pissed. Handing Harlan over to the Sparrows is an unambiguously immoral thing to do. Let us pretend for a moment that he cannot defend himself because none of the siblings are bothering to bring up the idea that perhaps he can hold his own against the Sparrows. What they are proposing to do is to hand Victor's stepson over to their evil step-siblings for what will surely be an execution. All so that they can get access to the Kugelblitz in the basement and maybe have some questionably trustworthy help in trying to defeat it. It is insane troll logic. It is fully mad and it's fucking dumb. Handing Harlan over would be a villainous thing to do. Not a gray thing, not a pragmatic thing, a straight up villainous thing. But Victor does not appeal to morality. Victor barely appeals at all. And the others turn on him easily. The second they don't agree with him, they throw all of his past mistakes in his face, and honestly, that's pretty accurate to reality. Suddenly, we're talking about Leonard for the first time in a full season and a half, and I just about lost my mind. Is Victor forgiven, or isn't he? Because that shit right there is exactly the behavior that made Stanley want to dissolve the body instead of coming clean. If the people in your life cannot forgive you and resist the urge to throw your old mistakes back in your face, then what the fuck is the point of keeping them in your life at all? That shit just made me so fucking mad, you guys. And bless Victor for having enough of a backbone to try to sneak Harlan out before they can all hand his ass over. So, upstairs in the White Buffalo suite, Stanley and Diego pull the harpoon out of the pachinko machine and fail to notice that the wall pops open because it's a goddamn secret door. Truly, Lila and Diego are too goddamn busy getting their rocks off to pay attention to the clues right in front of their eyes, and my ass is just over here screaming, stop fucking and solve a mystery, you fools, like an absolute lunatic. But also, like, stop fucking and solve a mystery, please. That's much more interesting. But then... Speaking of stop fucking, the time has come to deal with Allison. What Allison does in the following scene is a genuinely heinous crime, one that, in our real world such as it is, should be met with prison time. But here's the thing. Only 0.7% of all completed rapes result in prison time. Allison's sexual assault of Luther would never realistically be met with carceral consequences. And so I'm not going to argue that it should be nor that incarceration would even be the morally right move. Here's where I'm coming from. In my own personal life, I have had to puzzle out how I feel about my own abusers and what I feel they deserve going forward in life. And the conclusion that I have come to is a simple one. I do not want them in my life. I do not want anyone who has victimized me in my life. 
I want them to learn their lesson, and I want them to grow into healthy people who would never harm another person the way they harmed me, and that I want them to live happy and healthy lives with new people who they have not victimized and will never victimize, and I want them to leave me alone to the point that I do not even have to think about them unless I choose to do so. And that's what I want for Allison after this scene. After what she does here, I want her to stay away from Luther and Claire and her first husband for the rest of her life because she has abused all three of them in different ways. I want her to heal. I want her to address the pain in her heart that has led her to commit these awful crimes. And I want her to live a happy life without ever hurting another person ever again. But at the end of the day, my idea of the justice system is that I think Allison's victims are the ones who should have the final say in what price she pays for her transgressions. So let's stop dancing around the subject and take a few moments to delve into what exactly it is that Allison does. Luther arrives to try to comfort his sister because he can see that she is drowning, as he puts it. It's a sweet moment between them, at first. It's a heart-to-heart -heart and a momentary release of tension and an attempt to bond, but Allison really is drowning, just like Luther said. And when he tries to pull her out of her spiral by drawing her into a hug, she lets herself take comfort in an old, familiar bond. But it's not what she was hoping for. She's been drinking and fighting her pain away with Diego, and now she wants to try fucking it away with Luther, but Luther has moved on. Perhaps even more importantly, Luther is now emotionally mature enough to recognize what she's doing to him. Her interest in him right now is not about him at all. Her interest in him has nothing to do with him. He is a convenient way for her to try to forget about Ray and Claire, and that is not at all what Luther wants to be. He's not interested in being her lover anymore, and he is certainly not interested in being her coping mechanism. But Allison, Allison desperately needs a coping mechanism, because she is so utterly not coping. And the not coping reaches ahead the second Luther mentions Sloane. It's clear that Allison feels like she's being kicked while she's down. She gave up Ray, and that was a mistake. She accidentally erased Claire from existence, and now, in one of her darkest moments, Luther makes it explicitly clear that he is choosing another woman instead of her. And Allison loses her whole mind. She picks a fight, and Luther doesn't allow himself to be cowed, but he knows the danger when he hears it. He hears her threat the second before she goes through with it. He knows that she could mind-control him into doing whatever she wants, and he doesn't believe that she would really do that to him. But as the first season already implied for us years ago, there are few things that Allison would not do to get what she wants. Without even missing a beat, Allison leans into being the worst possible version of herself. She rumors Luther into staying in the room, and when that vicious triumph is not enough to sate her, she rumors him into lusting for her, and she sexually assaults him, only backing down when Luther begins to hurt them both. Now, I would like to say right up front that I don't think the end of this scene is especially well done. It is unclear what exactly is happening for both of them. As we're not privy to either character's thoughts in the moment, I do not know for sure what literally is going on. Is Luther fighting her control? Is he trying to harm himself? Is he trying to harm her? It's unclear, unfortunately, but the purpose it serves is unambiguous. This aborts Allison's sexual assault of her brother while it remains a sexual assault instead of progressing into a full-blown rape, which is... Not exactly a lot to rejoice over. I will defer to Luther's feelings on the subject should he ever express any, but a sexual assault or attempted rape can be every bit as traumatizing as a completed one, depending on the psyche of the survivor. So let's talk about this in another light, shall we? 
The word that is so often thrown around in regards to on-screen fictional rapes is unforgivable. When Spike tried to rape Buffy, it was unforgivable to a lot of the fans. I guarantee that out there in the world, many, if not most, Umbrella Academy fans have just come to the conclusion that Allison is now an unforgivable, irredeemable character, and I'm sure many, if not most of them, will insist that anyone who feels otherwise is a misandrist or doesn't care about male victims or some other bullshit like that. Now, I am not even going to give that particular notion another moment of my time, as it is complete nonsense and literally not worth my breath. Let's instead look at this logically. First and foremost is the simple fact that our society does not actually consider rape unforgivable. We can start with the statistic that I mentioned earlier. Rain reports that only 0.7% of all rapes result in prison time, though one in every six women and one in every 33 men will be subjected to at least one completed or attempted rape during their lifetime. Beyond that, we can look at prison sentences. Our justice system, such as it currently exists, is a punishment system. The basic premise is that you serve your time and then you have been punished. You are free from future consequences. And that sure sounds a lot like being forgiven to me, if not by your victim, then by society at large. In America, sex crimes including sexual assault, rape, and sexual battery, among others, can result in prison time ranging from a year to a lifetime. But the average sentence for sexual offenders convicted of rape is less than 15 years. In fact, as I write this, Ghislaine Maxwell has just been sentenced to only 20 years for four different counts of sex trafficking. So it stands to reason that rape is societally forgiven after 15 years on average. But sentences aren't the only factor. Before we even get to a trial, there is the statute of limitations, which is essentially a time restriction on when a crime can actually be prosecuted. In America, 34 states plus DC impose a statute of limitations on rape charges, after which the rapist can be subjected to no criminal charges. As in, once the statute of limitations is up, the crime is legally unpunishable. And again, that sure sounds like forgiven to me. And in case you're wondering, the statute of limitations for rape in several states is as short as three years. If you get away with it for three years, you will legally be in the clear. Alternately, you could just be Roman Polanski, who sodomized a little girl and yet had half of Hollywood bend over backwards to forgive him and make allowances for his actions. Or you could be Woody Allen, who married his stepdaughter and is accused of molesting another daughter and yet remains beloved to this day. Or you could be Michael Jackson, whose victims have all been decried as liars and gold diggers and attention seekers making up stories to spoil his legacy. Or you could be Mike Tyson, Marlon Brando, Dr. Luke, Prince Andrew, Tupac Shakur, Marilyn Manson, Johnny Depp, and so, so many others. Whether or not you believe any given one of the men that I have just named is innocent or guilty, the fundamental fact of our world is that rapists, by and large, almost always get away with it. Their victims are not believed. Society protects them. If you're trying to tell me with a straight face that rape is truly unforgivable in our world, I do not believe you. I get why you're saying it, sure. But the fact of the matter is that I don't think rape is unforgivable is even a helpful cultural meme of ours. What it ultimately does is shut down conversation, and it draws unhelpful lines in the sand. There is a reason, after all, that people refuse to believe beloved figures like Jackson, Bowie, Allen, Depp, Manson, and the like could possibly have done what they're accused of doing. If rape is unforgivable, then it costs us something to acknowledge our favorite 
creators as rapists. And so society chooses not to do that, if at all possible. Society will bend over backwards to pretend that false accusations are an epidemic, which could not possibly be farther from the truth. And so too does society bend over backwards to try to change the definition of rape and sexual assault so that only very specific victims qualify and only very specific rapists need to be considered unforgivable. And the fact of the matter is that studies show a significant portion of people don't even actually know what the hell does and does not constitute rape or sexual assault or even consent. A too large percentage of men will even readily admit that they would rape a woman if they could get away with it, though less of them will admit it if you actually use the word rape instead of simply calling it forced sex. Rape cannot be both an epidemic and unforgivable. And there is absolutely no getting around the fact that rape is an epidemic. One in six women. One in 33 men. Rape cannot be that common and unforgivable. Now, am I trying to convince you personally to give up your strongly held conviction that rape and sexual assault are unforgivable crimes? No, I'm not doing that at all. I don't know you, but my personal morals come from careful examination and thoughtful exploration of my own sense of self, my experiences, and the facts of the world at large. And I trust that yours do too. If you're of the mindset that what Allison did here is unforgivable, I am not going to try to convince you otherwise. I'm just going to gently suggest that perhaps it's not a helpful way to view the situation, either in the real world or in fiction. My view, at least, is that at the end of the day, the only person who gets to decide if a rape is an unforgivable crime is the person who was actually victimized. And in this case, that victim is Luther. Now, this situation, of course, is extra sticky because Luther is not actually a person. Luther is a character. Luther is being written. Allison, too, is being written. Looking strictly at Allison, I am torn on this plotline for her. On the one hand, this clarifies what was alluded to back in season one. A line in that season heavily implied that Allison rumored at least one former lover, presumably her husband, into loving her, and fundamentally, that is rape. It is ongoing rape. It is domestic abuse. And I'm pleased to see that the narrative might actually finally be dealing with that line. I don't like how it was just thrown out there and never clarified or expanded upon. If Allison has committed rape in the past, then that's something we need to deal with. But on the other hand, I don't know if I enjoy that this is the way for the story to handle it. It ties in, I'm afraid, with how I feel about what this plotline means for Luther. If this actually gets properly explored in regards to his character, I will be all for it. But if this gets brushed under the rug, Oh boy, is this show stepping onto a hornet's nest of one of my most hated and bizarrely prevalent fantasy and sci-fi tropes. Now, TV Tropes has a whole page of examples, but here is the gist. In science fiction and fantasy stories wherein magic or mind control are used to rape or sexually assault someone, the crime often gets brushed under the rug by the narrative because writers and readers alike struggle to apply real-world morality and logic to fantasy circumstances. It happens all the time. I can think of tons of examples in the Buffyverse alone. There's Oz, who was raped by Veruca while they're both transformed into werewolves. There are Buffy and Riley, who are both raped by Faith when she steals Buffy's body. There's Tara, who is mind-controlled by her girlfriend over a period of time that includes an on-screen sexual interlude. There's Cordelia and Connor, who are mutually raped by Jasmine while she's possessing Cordelia's body. In Harry Potter, there's Merope Gond, who is treated with sympathy by Harry and Dumbledore despite the fact that she married and raped Tom Riddle Sr. with the help of a love potion. 
And there's also Queenie Goldstein, who mind controls Jacob Kowalski into marrying her against his will in one film and then gets readily forgiven and happily married to him in the next. And are you noticing what I'm noticing about all of these instances? The commonality between all of these rapists by magical means? Veruca, Faith, Willow, Jasmine, Marope, Queenie. Yeah, it's all women. The victims are of various genders, but the perpetrators whose crimes go unaddressed and get brushed under the rug so long as they're magical? Women. All of them. Now, I don't mean to say that there are not male examples of this happening. There are. I can think of one male example in Buffy, another two in Supernatural, and I'm sure there are plenty that I'm either forgetting or simply not aware of. But in my experience, this is a trope that is more often assigned to female characters. And before you come at me with some kind of nonsense about, oh, that's female privilege, no, it's not. Female privilege does not exist. So let's pause and have a little conversation about abuse. Because as certain real-world trials have proved recently, people simply don't know what the fuck abuse is. Abuse is not violence. Abuse is not being mean. Abuse is not insults. Abuse is not hitting someone. Abuse is not a physical attack, an assault, or a humiliation. Relationship abuse is the harnessing of power in a way to hurt one member of the relationship. It is one person using their higher place in society's hierarchy or in the relationship specifically against someone of a lower position. In an abusive relationship, the abusive partner has more power than the abused. Period. That is how it works. An older partner can leverage their life experience against a younger one. A wealthier partner can leverage their financial success against a less wealthy one. A male partner can leverage their power against a female or non-binary one. A white partner can leverage their power against a non-white one. A cis or straight partner can leverage their power against a queer one. An able-bodied or neurotypical partner can leverage their power against a disabled or neurodivergent one. A parent can leverage their power against a child. If there is no power imbalance, Violence does not turn into abuse, period. That is not how it works. That is a toxic relationship. If there is no power imbalance, violence does not become abuse. That's not how it works. If there is no power imbalance, violence tends to sever the relationship. Or some abusive personalities will simply never commit acts of violence against partners on their level. But when there is a power imbalance within a relationship, well, that's when a relationship can potentially go from toxic to abusive. And in the real world, the simple fact of the matter is that female partners do not usually experience a power imbalance in their favor. There is a reason that in traditionally abusive households, men stereotypically abuse their wives and women stereotypically abuse their children. You cannot abuse someone unless you have power over them. That is a simple fact. But there is a rapidly growing narrative nowadays that, quote, abuse has no gender, and that is simply reductive to the point of being absurd. No, of course, abuse does not strictly adhere to gender lines. Of course not. But to deny that some genders are inherently afforded societal power over others is truly delusional. Abuse has a gender in the same way that power and privilege does. The reality is that most abuse victims are female, and when they aren't, they are otherwise marginalized in some capacity. Maybe they're physically disabled. Maybe they're trans. Maybe they're a person of color. Maybe they're far younger or poorer or less educated than their partner. But what I want to do right now is look specifically at gender for a minute, because I've already pointed it out. All of my examples above are female characters. 
all of the unacknowledged fictional abusers who get away with their abuse because it's magical in some way, it's magical manipulation, they're women. Because this shit ties heavily into misogynistic tropes. Male abusers in fiction are treated with a familiar brush. Rape is unforgivable and it's always violent and the victim is always unimpeachable. She's the perfect, innocent victim. But female abusers in fiction? They're interesting. Take a look at how they abuse their partners. Forget about the ones that abuse their kids because that's a whole other set of tropes. Specifically look at the examples I've outlined and whatever else springs to your mind. Female abusers in fiction, especially in science fiction and fantasy stories, tend to abuse their powers through mind control. Manipulation, in other words. Which is precisely what happens when male abusers try to darvo their female victims. That is, it's precisely what female victims are accused of doing when their male abusers try to rewrite the narrative and paint themselves as victims of some awful, controlling, gold-digging harpy of a wife instead of simply acknowledging that what they did was abuse. Women are always accused of being manipulative. Always. We forced you to lose control of yourself with our tight dress and our short skirt. We stole your money by getting alimony after we spent 20 years out of the workforce to raise your kids. Our tears are not an honest expression of our emotions, but a way to force you to do what we want. We put on makeup to trick you into thinking we're more attractive than we are. And in sci-fi, this is literalized. We shapeshift. We possess the women you actually want to be with. We mind control you into loving us or fucking us. And the usually male writers of these stories let these fictional characters get away with literal, actual rape. Because they subconsciously do not see any difference between what Allison and Veruca and Marape did and what women supposedly manipulate men into doing every day. It is misogynistic bullshit. And if you want to talk about what actually harms male victims, it is that shit right there. Having female characters do this shit over and over again in our stories because it taps into our subconscious understanding of women as manipulators is unconscionable. And that Luther doesn't even mention what happens to anyone? That is unbelievable. That is an unbelievable writing choice. If he were a real person, yes, it would be his choice to tell or not to tell. It is his story, it is his secret, it is his decision. But Luther is not a real person. And people fucking wrote this. They wrote Allison as an attempted rapist, and they wrote Luther as a survivor of sexual assault, and it is now their job to use both of these characters to model for the audience how this is supposed to be handled. Allison is a heroic character who did a horrific thing. Unless she's about to descend into full-blown villainy this season, she needs to model what it looks like for someone to commit this kind of crime and afterward atone. And Luther? Luther needs to model for the abused men and boys in the audience how to come forward with his, with their, stories. Luther needs to be allowed to process this and to heal. And don't you fucking dare try to hide behind realism in this. Do not come at me with some kind of, oh, but in reality he wouldn't tell anyone. Bullshit. Reality is no excuse for fiction, and if this show can manage to model how to respectfully handle a sibling's transition, you bet your fucking ass that I expect them to be willing and able to model how to respond to when a man is sexually assaulted. Jesus Christ, this whole thing pissed me off so fucking much. Can you tell? So from here, we find Victor attempting to get Harlan out of the building, and he's an absolute dipshit about it. Allison confronts him, and she manages to convince him to let her take Harlan instead. It makes zero sense for Victor to agree to this, and I'm terrified what it means for the plot. This could go either way. 
following through on her word here could be the first beat of a redemption arc for Allison, a first step onto the path of atonement for what she's done right on the heels of having done it. Or Allison is going to betray Victor and Harland, and if she does that, well, she'll be one more step along the road toward becoming an unambiguous villain, won't she? And she doesn't have too many steps left before she's there. Too much more. Any more, really. And she's not going to be able to come back. And between you and me, if it starts to look for a single second like Allison is not going to be redeemed or redeemable, well, then I'm growing rapidly very suspicious indeed about where this season is going to end up. Because if Allison goes full-blown villain, I fully expect her to die. And if any of the siblings, except for Klaus, die, then I really do think that we're going to end up right back at the beginning of the show. So, Victor goes downstairs and meets up with his brothers. Diego is busy getting laid, but Luther, Five, and Klaus are there to tell Victor exactly what they think of him, and my heart breaks. Victor is doing the right thing here. The right thing, based off the information he and I have so far, at least. And he's being shamed for it. Once again, his siblings are turning their backs on him in a moment of crisis, and they're shaming him, and I thought we were fucking over this. I suppose I can't blame any of them for being in a shit headspace right now, given what they have all so recently endured, but that shit still doesn't take the sting out of it. But, to that point, Five drinks himself through a mostly one-sided conversation about his life and his mortality and everything that he's endured, and then he flops a patch of his own severed skin onto the table. It's the tattoo that he cut off himself, and Klaus, to both my and Five's surprise, Klaus recognizes it. It is, apparently, the symbol of a biker gang known as the Mothers of Agony, and Five rushes off to investigate. And then, to the dulcet tones of First Aid Kit, Luther's dumbass goes and knocks on the Sparrow's front door, which I'm sure is going to go well. And, as Diego fails to notice the glowing light behind the wall of the White Buffalo Suite and Klaus admires his own rapidly healing mortal wound, Five walks into the biker bar that's home to the Mothers of Agony, and finds Pogo in the back room a cigarette in his mouth, and a tattoo gun in his hand. And I cannot pretend that I was expecting that. So, I'm in a weird place with this show. In case you couldn't tell from my many, many minutes of ranting, I don't think I enjoy what has happened so far. That is not a judgment yet, but it will become a judgment depending on how the rest of the season plays out. I try very hard to adhere to the idea of don't judge a story until you've seen the ending. The ending of a story fundamentally recontextualizes a story. The end of a story teaches you how you should read and respond to the rest of the story. It teaches you the meaning of the story, etc., etc. So I cannot judge the handling yet of this Alison Luther thing this victor thing i can't judge any of the handling of that because i don't know how it continues to be handled throughout the rest of the narrative but the fact of the matter is that i am in a place right now where i am frightened that it is going to be poorly handled magical rapes magical sexual assaults are almost always brushed under the rug by the narratives in which they exist and i don't want to see any more examples of that ever i've seen so so many i can think of a half dozen or more just off the top of my head. Possibly I can think of a full dozen off the top of my head, and that is not a fun place to be in. I don't like that. I hate that. 
I don't want to see that anymore in our stories. And if we do have to include that stuff in our stories, I would appreciate actually addressing it responsibly. And I've never, ever, ever once seen anything address it responsibly. The closest it ever comes to being properly handled is scenes like in Buffy, when Katrina was mind-controlled. She was not sexually assaulted, but she was about to be when she broke free of the control, and then she was murdered. And that was a proper handling of what happened. It was pivotal to the narrative. It was something that changed the circumstances of the story, and the story dealt with it throughout the rest of its plot. But that is the only example I can think of, of it being truly properly handled. I cannot think of another one. The closest anything comes to a second example is what happened with Tom Riddle Sr. and Merope Gaunt, and again, the sympathetic protagonist and his mentor in that story found her to be the sympathetic character and blamed her victim for leaving her. That is insanity to me, and I'm so sick of seeing it. And especially because, given that most of the characters perpetuating this violence in fictional contexts are women, that is being appropriated by bad faith, so-called advocates against domestic violence to try to pretend that real-world domestic violence is not inherently the misuse of power and privilege against the less powerful and less privileged. Abuse doesn't have a gender is a lie. Abuse has a gender. Abuse has a sexuality. Abuse has a class. Abuse is a powerful person leveraging their power against a less powerful person. And these stories repeatedly painting abuse as something that a woman manipulates a man into doing against his will it's sick. It's genuinely sick. And I'm so sick of seeing it. So, my hope at this point, of course, is that we handle this appropriately. What happens to Allison is less important, I feel, than what happens with Luther. If we have a story going forward, and what we do is neglect to explore Luther's experience, and instead focus on Allison's experience, then that is a perpetrator-centered story. That's not interesting. I have no problem with Allison being heartily explored as we go forward. We should explore her. But if we explore her instead of exploring Luther, that is extremely harmful. Luther was the victim here. His narrative is the one that needs to be centered as we move forward. If we're going to deal with this, which we absolutely must if we're acting responsibly, Luther's character arc needs to be the one centered in any and all scenes dealing with what happened between him and Allison. And if we simply don't get any scenes dealing with what happened, I think I'm going to fully lose my mind. So, as I record this, I am sitting down. As soon as I hit stop, I'm going to be watching the next episode. I am worried. I'm very worried, in case you can't tell, in case you cannot hear the worry dripping from my vocal cords. I am worried. Like I said, like I've been saying all along, this is a favorite of mine because I love a good 
you know, ensemble. I love a found family. I love team as family. And I don't need, I don't really need a compelling plotline at this point in the show. I want one, yes. But I love these characters. I've been saying all along that I love all of these characters to a certain extent at this point, and I would watch them do just about anything. And the only way to ruin this season for me would be to have something egregiously heinous happen. And I'm very worried that I've jinxed myself. I'm very worried right now that they have done something heinous that they're not going to cop to, something that they're not going to handle. And while I can only lose so much respect for Allison because she's a fictional character, it will mean that I lose most, if not all, of my respect for these writers. If you put this in your story and simply did not think through the consequences, I don't know how you exist in the year 2022. I don't know how you could write a sexual assault into your story and not be aware enough to actually handle it. I don't know how you could possibly be taken aback by the response you are inevitably going to get. The only way you could be taken aback by the way people are responding to this, and I'm sure it's negatively, is to just not have been paying attention to our culture at large. Our culture is in a vast storm right now of people trying to advocate for their own well-being and people in power attempting to beat them down and reassert the narrative that marginalized people are marginalized for a reason. And this story, if it's not used responsibly, could be another instance of using a fictional narrative to beat down marginalized people, including, of course, actual real-world male victims. So that's my whole point, I guess. If we don't handle this, I'm going to be very angry. This is irresponsible storytelling if we don't handle this. And if we don't handle it perfectly, it's still going to be irresponsible storytelling. Granted, you know, no one at large, the general population is never going to agree on what is and is not perfect. But I think I have pretty acceptable standards, if I do say so myself, and I know how I want this handled. And I hope that they handle it that way. So, I'm going to be back next week with my next episode of coverage of Umbrella Academy Season 3. I do so desperately hope that it's not going to be another rant-filled episode, because I feel I've now had two in a row, and I don't enjoy them. Um, so, if you at all enjoyed this episode, you may be interested in going to my Patreon, where I have $1, $5, and $10 tiers. I would be extraordinarily appreciated if you could do that. Check those out. See what's you know, in the perks. Tell me if there's anything else that you want. Because, um, this episode took a long time to write. And I would enjoy if anyone listening would actually, you know, give me a buck or two for it. Perhaps that's selfish, but that is where I'm at. This is not, you know, there's a certain simplicity to reaction videos. You are either compelling or you are not, but 
here, I'm putting a lot more work into this um, and dealing with very heavy subject matter. So again, if you are interested at all in the Patreon, that would be extraordinarily appreciated. I'm not going to, you know, pressure anyone, shame anyone, but it would be appreciated. Otherwise, if you are not interested in that, you may be interested in leaving a rating or a review or talking about the show on social media or maybe just recommending it to a friend. And if you're not interested in any of that, which I don't blame you, I feel rather drained by this episode, so you probably do too, then you are fully welcome to just keep listening from week to week. I hope to be back next week with a happier and brighter take on whatever the fuck happens in the rest of this story, but I make no guarantees. So. With all of that said, thank you so much for listening.